Welcome to GovCon Live. This is the third episode on our series on risk prevention strategies. In this episode, Matt Feinberg and Megan Benevento, attorneys in Pilaro Maza's Litigation and Dispute Resolution Group, sit down to discuss key legal considerations to account for in crisis management, covering top mistakes companies make before and after a crisis, preventative measures your business can implement today, and long-term strategies for preserving employee, investor, and customer confidence after a crisis. Whether it's a data breach, serious accident, government investigation, adverse media attention, or a major lawsuit, your company must be prepared to respond quickly and manage unexpected challenges. So a contingency plan is key to mitigating damage, avoiding costly errors, and ensuring long-term protection for your business. Before we join the discussion, we have some business to handle. This podcast is for informational purposes only. We're not rendering legal advice. Your unique facts and circumstances could change the advice that would apply, and the rapidly changing nature of the law may cause the information in this podcast to become outdated. Let's get started. All right, and good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Risk Prevention Strategies, Legal Considerations and Crisis Management, Planning, Mitigation, and Recovery. My name is Matt Feinberg, and my co-presenter today is Megan Benevento. We are attorneys in the Litigation and Dispute Resolution Practice Group at Polaro Mazza, and we're going to try and give you an overview of some strategies for handling crisis management, at least from a legal perspective. We're going to talk about contingency plans. I'll go ahead and give us a little introduction. Again, my name is Matt Feinberg. I'm a partner in the Litigation and Dispute Resolution Practice Group at Polaro Mazza. As far as crisis management is concerned, I've handled a number of crisis management matters over the years from small matters, which might include a fairly minor litigation over an employee dispute for a small business up to $330 million disputes about securities fraud and the like. So I have a a wide range of experience. Usually I'm able to give as much information as possible about the experiences I have I'm joined today by my colleague, Megan Benevento, and I'll give her a chance to introduce herself. Hi, everyone. My name's Megan Benevento, and as Matt said, I am another attorney in our litigation practice group, and I also have advised many clients on how to navigate crisis situations, not just in the litigation context, but those calls you get at 10 o'clock at night when something worse nightmare comes up for a client and they need counsel immediately before even a lawsuit is on the horizon. And so that's what we're really going to try to cover here for you so that when those times come, you know what to do. And hopefully having a plan in place will help you navigate those scenarios. We want to cover what exactly is a crisis because sometimes when events occur, we're not sure if they rise to a level where we need to go into our emergent response system. So we want to talk about some of the issues that we most commonly see as crises and some that you might come across in the course of your business. And then go through the common pitfalls and mistakes that we see businesses make both before a crisis ever occurs that make that situation infinitely worse when it does occur. And then also what those mistakes are that they make in kind of those first 72 hours or so following a crisis so that you can learn from other people's mistakes. 
then we want to talk a little bit about how you can prepare yourself for something like this because an ounce of prevention is worth more than a pound of cure. And especially in a crisis scenario, there are so many different steps where things can escalate exponentially if not handled appropriately. And so that's why it's so important to have a plan before a crisis occurs so that you know not to make the missteps. So our goal here is to walk you through what a crisis management plan looks like and what your crisis management plan needs to have in place for you to be set up to succeed to the best of your ability to nip any crises in the bud and to mitigate any damage that could fall out from a crisis. So what is a crisis? Of course, what's a crisis for one company isn't always going to be a crisis for another company. It really can depend on your industry and what type of exposures that you have. So for a large corporation, having a small partner that you do business with, that the vendor have something come up that's unsavory in the media might not really have an impact on you. But if you are a small joint venture and your your partners are having major issues in the media, maybe they someone's been arrested or there's been some negative fallout from a business decision they made independent of your work with them, that could be a major crisis for you. So what we like to say is that any event that has a reasonable possibility of impacting your business can be or can turn into a crisis. If it's not necessarily going to impact your business, then it's not quite rising to the level of urgency that we're really talking about here today. So some of the common crises that we see occur a lot with employees. Anyone that has interacted with our labor and employment group knows that employee situations are very complex and very heated. And whether it be a complaint of discrimination in the workplace or improper pay schemes, employee complaints, even just starting out at the outset of complaining internally, have the potential to become a crisis if not responded to appropriately. Another common thing that can happen is workplace accidents, especially for our construction clients and other more high-risk applications where your labor force is out and could possibly get injured. A severe accident on the job could get picked up by the media and could also have legal consequences. Another thing that is a common crisis can be being sued. Sometimes the media will pick up that you've been sued if it's an interesting piece of litigation and cover those types of claims. Another thing that could happen when you're sued is, as we all know, that the impact that that has for your organization in responding to a lawsuit and the cost that it can cause you to incur to defend yourself. It's certainly, if it, the lawsuit seeks any sort of injunctive relief that could impact your business operations, that's certainly a crisis point that we want to handle expeditiously as possible. Another common thing that we're seeing are phishing scams and data breaches. So for example, if a 
vendor that you work with says that they want to change what bank account that your payments are being routed to when you pay your invoices to them. There are scammers out there that are posing as those vendors and then your payments are going to the wrong account. It's happened to many people out there. And so scams and data breaches and phishing problems can dovetail into so much more damage than just the annoyance of this initial breach and closing the breach and identifying the issue. Another thing that we see for our clients is you you could be issued a subpoena or be a witness in a government investigation. And it's important to handle those situations properly so that you don't wind up having the blowback of just being a third-party entity that gets pulled into those situations. So thanks, Megan. I want to pick up on the last couple that you mentioned. As a government contractor, and a lot of the people on the call are government contractors, a lot of the people we represent work with the federal government. The most common crisis you're going to see is the receipt of some sort of process, a subpoena, a request for information, a civil investigative demand, a request for an interview from the government. And that can take a few different forms. And the level of crisis and the level of importance of the response can vary by the way that that subpoena or document gets delivered to you. For instance, we've had clients before where all they do is receive a subpoena by certified mail or sometimes even by email. The subpoena is responded to. There are some documents exchanged and and no one ever hears about it. There are other instances, and unfortunately, this happens more often than than we care to, to imagine. The government shows up at your place of employment, at your government site with not only a subpoena, but sometimes with flak jackets that say FBI in very in gold letters on the back. Sometimes they come with weapons. Sometimes they execute a search warrant regardless of need. Typically, you're going to see those types of things happen when there's a a criminal component, but not always. We've had the government show up with weapons and flak jackets for a fairly simple civil dispute. So the level of aggression that the opponent, the, the catalyst for the crisis uses to create the crisis is going to govern how you respond in particular in the immediate 24 hours after you receive or after the crisis comes up. So what are some common mistakes and pitfalls that companies make when dealing with a crisis? So before the crisis occurs, often the the most troublesome area is not having a process in place to prevent the crisis from either happening at all or from taking a hold and, and getting a lot more expansive and a lot more leverage in your workforce or in your competitor force or with the government before it happens. Often, we recommend that you have checks and balances in place, particularly when you're a government contractor, to ensure that you're in compliance with the requirements of your contracts. So it's fairly easy to, to think that you're in compliance because you're handling your contract in a, in a standard best interest of the government way. But you may have specific requirements in your contracts that require updates on a regular basis or to have an ethics policy in place at all times. You want to make sure at the very beginning of that contract, before performance starts, that you have all of your ducks in a row, all of your T's crossed and I's dotted to make sure that the crisis doesn't come up where the government issues, for instance, a termination for default or a termination for convenience 
or issues a cure notice because you're not in compliance with the specific requirements of your contract. You want to make sure that you're in compliance with HR requirements. If you're on a construction contract, for instance, you will have obligations to meet prevailing wage standards under the Davis-Bacon Act. You want to make sure that your assignment of various individuals to various prevailing wage classifications is accurate and that you have documented the information in order to justify it later on. You need to have employment and executive manuals in place and you need to be following them and you need to have adequate supervision over your supervisors. And what I mean by that is you may have the most trustworthy manager that you've ever seen in an employment setting. But the reality is that everybody makes mistakes. And if there's not an adequate check and balance or supervisory effort over those individuals, that's where a crisis can come in because people can become complacent because they have a great employment staff. In addition, for crises in particular, we recommend having a plan or policy in advance for dealing with the types of issues that government contractors and commercial businesses face in their individual industry. And one of the biggest mistakes and pitfalls that a company can encounter is not having a plan in advance in the event of an adverse event. So for instance, you might receive contact from the media, from the Washington Post, about the work you're doing on a specific contract. In the hyper-political world that we have right now, for instance, you could be performing a government contract assisting in border security or in Customs and Border Patrol. The government contractors often get the brunt of those of the criticism in the media for operating detention centers or for building border security walls, when in reality, what they're doing is fulfilling their contract with the government. So you want to have a contingency plan in place that when the media calls, you know exactly who needs to be taking that call, and you need to know who's not supposed to be taking that call. If they call the front desk of your corporate office and the individual starts answering questions about the the contract without understanding who's on the other end of the line, that's an easy way to create a crisis. You also want to make sure that you have a plan in place to to specifically document how your response is supposed to go, who the response is going to be provided by, and making copies of every single response that you provide to whoever you're speaking to, whether it be the government whether it be a lawyer, whether it be a complainant, such as an employee, or whether it's the media. And you want to make sure that you know exactly what was said and it's recorded because what you say verbally but don't reduce to writing can come back to bite you later on because everyone, it's just a game of telephone, ultimately. People are going to construe your words through the lens that they came to the conversation with. So if they already believe that your company has engaged in fraud or is performing something, some untoward government contract, they're going to color everything you say in that vein. If you have your answers in writing, if they have been vetted by the appropriate people in your business, you're more likely to be able to push back later in the event that you're misquoted or the information in the media is incorrect. You also want to have a plan in place for communicating with the media to understand who exactly at the company has the authority and the steps that that individual goes through before speaking with the media. Generally speaking, most companies should should provide no comment to the media, but sometimes that's not possible. The scope of the crisis may be something that you need to put a response into the public eye 
and knowing exactly who has the authority to speak on behalf of the company is important and following that plan in advance is important. And you also need a plan or a policy for how you're going to conduct internal investigations. This is really important in the employment context, in the False Claims Act context, and in any whistleblower context, depending on what the whistleblower could possibly be reporting on in your industry. For instance, where does the whistleblower or employee complaint go? Who is the person tasked with investigating a whistleblower complaint from an employee who is saying, for instance, that they were discriminated against by their supervisor? In addition, if you want a specific procedure in place that will allow you to follow a tried and true practice for evaluating whether the investigation needs to be elevated to a high-level employee, farmed out to, for instance, an HR investigator or an attorney's office, or whether it can be handled entirely internally without much risk to the company. Another common mistake and pitfall for companies that eventually might face a crisis is not being properly and or fully insured. And what that generally means is that you have the wrong insurance for the types of issues that can come up for you, or you have inadequate insurance as far as the amount of coverage, or you're not properly formatting your insurance to cover the types of events that might take place. Megan mentioned in particular phishing scams. And what we're talking about in those phishing scams is something called social engineering fraud. And it's when an outside actor, usually a scammer, usually from a foreign country, reaches out to government contractors and states that usually prime contractors and changes the bank account information for a vendor or a subcontractor or a teaming partner. And it is not recognized until a couple of months later when invoices have gone unpaid and the teaming partner or vendor reaches out and says, you've got a $40,000 balance. When can we expect payment? And at that point, it's discovered that the bank account information was changed. The prime contractor made the payment, but it was never received by the subcontractor. That money is now long gone. The prime contractor Generally, the law has not caught up with this sort of phishing scam. And so there's very rarely can the prime contractor be liable to the subcontractor for the erroneous payment. And so where do you go for some relief? There is social engineering fraud or computer fraud insurance that we recommend that government contractors have. In the last two years, we've had social engineering fraud incidents that ranged in, in value from 25000 to $750,000. If your company could survive a $750,000 social engineering fraud incident, that would be rare. So having the right insurance at the right time is important. Another incident that comes up frequently is that most companies have corporate general liability insurance. But unfortunately, that rarely covers you in a crisis. It generally does not cover employment claims. It generally does not cover hacks or data breaches. Typically, corporate general liability covers personal injury and property damage. So you need to really think about the type of work that your company is doing in advance, understanding your needs. We recommend for those with a significant number of employees and high-risk industries, EPLI insurance, which covers employment suits, directors and officers insurance, and errors and omissions insurance. 
We also represent cyber fraud and social engineering insurance, recommend policies to make sure that you're adequately covered. And then finally, one of the most important early mistakes and pitfalls that can occur that make a crisis worse are not having a document retention policy in place that is robust enough to ensure that you're protecting the proper documents and making sure that you have access to them. On a government contract, we recommend that you maintain your documents related to your performance for a period of six years after the final date of performance and contract closeout. It's not necessarily guaranteed, but it does help in the crisis management process afterwards. And keep in mind that often False Claims Act allegations happen either toward the end of contract performance or after contract performance particularly if the False Claims Act allegations relate to your qualification to have bid on the contract in the first place because of your size or your status as a service-disabled, veteran-owned small business or an 8A program participant. Often, that type of information doesn't come out until after performance is complete, in which case you may have destroyed some documents that were particularly important to proving that you were an appropriately qualified SDVOSB or 8A company at the time you performed on the work. So those are some of the common mistakes and pitfalls that that we have seen over the years. And then we want to talk a little bit about what happens afterwards. So when the crisis occurs, and again, like Megan said, that can take many shapes and forms. It could be as as small as a part-time employee complaining about working conditions, or it could be, as I mentioned, a $300 million claim that the company has engaged in some sort of fraud. The important thing to recognize is you've got to recognize when there is a crisis. And Megan gave a general definition earlier about what is a crisis. It's generally anything that can have a reasonable possibility of impacting your business. I think that's, that's honestly, a, the definition is maybe a little too broad. Could it be a material impact on your business? That's what a crisis is. And you have to think about the specific issue that is coming up as part of the crisis. If it's an employment complaint, you have to think about what the specific complaint is. Are they alleging widespread discrimination? Is the employee who's making the complaint anonymous? Are they well-known and well-liked in the workplace? Are they trustworthy? Is this someone that other employees look to for advice or for as a model employee. If those are circumstances you're facing, it could very well be a crisis because that individual, whether they are intending to or not, could be spreading information about the company within your employment. And you could have a mass exodus of employees who decide to go to a competitor or just to to simply leave your employment. So it's important to understand what exactly a crisis is and how it could potentially affect your company and take appropriate steps, which we'll talk about in a bit, in order to determine the appropriate response to the appropriate level of crisis. And that's another important point. You know, crises can can be of varying sizes. A small employee complaint may not seem like a huge crisis, but it could turn into one. But a significant fraud claim could could be a crisis right out. It's obvious, you know, that it's a that it is a crisis. But understanding the proportionate response to the, per- the size of the crisis is an important thing to do right away. A serious mistake or pitfall in response to a crisis can be a failure to communicate or over-communication. 
a failure to communicate, something could come out in the news saying that your company is having financial trouble and you're expected to close 14 locations over the next year. If you do not respond to that sort of allegation, your employees could be wondering, am I going to have a job in six months? And if that's the case, they're going to start looking. And when your employees start looking and you're not responding, it compounds the frustration and the concern that those employees would have. And suddenly their performance is lacking. On a government contract, for instance, if there are rumors about a termination or a failure of performance, you can see employees jump ship because they don't have the information and it's not coming from the company fast enough. There's also a risk in overcommunication. I think about a restaurant that I represented years ago. There were some allegations of some mistreatment of employee workers. The company immediately responded in the media without speaking to a communications expert or an attorney and said some questionable things in the media that gave people a misunderstanding of the situation. It resulted in protests at the restaurant. It resulted in a significant loss of business. And ultimately, management had to be replaced later because of the overcommunication. You want to treat every single communication as though it might become public later. So generally speaking, obviously, your communications with a lawyer are confidential. But if you are speaking to the media, if you're speaking to your employees, if you're speaking to industry watchdogs, if you're speaking to the government, that information may become public at some point in the future, particularly if you're speaking to the government because it may be subject to the Freedom of Information Act. So you want to be very careful about what you put in writing and you want to be very careful about what you say on a topic without fully understanding the, the scope of the crisis because that information could be used against you later. You may have timely reporting requirements. For instance, if you discover from a whistleblower that you may be out of compliance with cybersecurity requirements for your contract or CMMI, for instance, for those of you who are in the government contracting space, you may have the obligation pursuant to your contract and pursuant to the mandatory reporting requirements of the False Claims Act to let the government know so that the government can can adequately take steps to protect the information or, as necessary, put a contingency plan in place to correct mistakes. You may have, for both government contractors and private sector businesses, you may have a board or a management team or shareholders that need to be, that information needs to be reported to on a regular basis, particularly in the event of a crisis. With regard to insurance, I talked about a little earlier. You have reporting requirements to insurance if you're going to obtain coverage for an incident. Historically, insurance companies will fight coverage where they haven't received prompt notice of a covered event because they want the opportunity to investigate the incident as well. And then perhaps most important is timely reporting to counsel. There have been a number of times in my career where clients have received a whistleblower complaint or communication from the government, like a cure notice that alleges fraud, and they believe that they can handle it themselves without speaking first to a lawyer. You may be able to handle it yourself, but it's always better to have a lawyer on standby who understands what is happening, what the potential pitfalls are, 
and maybe be able to see some of the read between the lines and what the government is saying and understand the type of communication that should be going back to the government in such an instance. Another common mistake and pitfall once the crisis has occurred is failing to document the crisis and your response. Many times receiving a whistleblower complaint, for instance, or a complaint that there's some sort of fraud on your contract, many times if you do not take good notes and understand exactly what's happening with the allegation, you're not documenting your response in your investigation, that makes the defense of a future False Claims Act claim by the government more difficult for you and for the lawyer that ultimately may have to represent you. You want to be careful, again, in my example of the restaurant, not to make admissions against interest. Admissions in the media or to the government without having vetted them through an attorney or a communications professional can cause substantial problems for the company down the road. They can include, for instance, waiving defenses or claims, or it might present by loose language, admitting liability for something that the company has no liability for. So you want to be very careful about the communications, ultimately, that you're providing to the people involved in the crisis. You want to make sure that you're talking to your appropriate consultants, whether they be lawyers or communications professionals, or the boots on the ground, the people who understand your day-to-day business and the incident the best. You want to do that before speaking to the press, before speaking to the authorities, and you do not assume that you can handle it alone. Even if you probably could handle it alone, you need that backup. The final thing I want to mention is the biggest mistake and potential most catastrophic pitfall in response to a crisis is not selecting the right team for the specific circumstances of the crisis. So I'm going to give you an example from my experience. I had a a company reach out to me about a crisis. It was a pretty significant claim of fraud against the company. And the company, their first step was to hire a communications expert. And this communications expert was very well known, speaking on CNN, on NBC, on a regular basis, had represented prior presidents and their scandals. And although this was a very large fraud claim by the government, that individual was not the right person for this specific crisis. And after being communicated within three weeks, I was asked to terminate that communications professional And I can't imagine, or 10 years ago, I would never have thought that I would be firing one of the president's advisors. You need to make sure that the person and the team that you have assembled understands the specific circumstances you're going through. For instance, if you're a small business facing a claim that you committed fraud against the government because you weren't small at the time you were performing your contract or at the time your contract was awarded, your team should include people who are very well versed on small business issues. You wouldn't want to hire a communications expert who costs $20,000 a day or $20,000 a week. You want to make sure that you're talking to someone who represents small businesses on a regular basis because they have, they know the appropriate language to use. They know the people involved and they often know exactly where the, even if the government doesn't disclose the specific They usually understand the specifics just simply because of the nature of the investigation itself. So selecting the right team for the specific circumstances is a really important factor, and the wrong team can be the biggest mistake you make during a crisis. 
So looking ahead then, as we have discussed all the pitfalls, we want to make sure that you know what to do now in advance to prepare for the crisis and to handle it in that moment. Because when crises hit, it tends to be one of the worst moments in your company's longevity. It's a low point. No one wants to have to deal with those situations. And when they happen, it's such a easier process if you know exactly what to do and who to call and can literally direct people to it's in our handbook or it's in our manual. So we advise everyone to make a plan. And when we say make a plan, we don't mean make a plan just sitting around going through in your mind, what would I do? We mean commit a plan to writing and have it documented. And when it comes to what should this plan entail, look at your business, look at your industry, and think about what types of crises you're most likely to have come up. If your business has very few employees, maybe you don't need a robust employee complaint crisis plan. But the more employees you have, the more likely you're going to need one of those. If you are um, a company that is still paper-based and doesn't really use electronic means of communication, then maybe the data breach piece isn't the first priority for you. So sit down, do an honest assessment of your business. What types of things keep you up at night that you're worried might happen? And then sit down and say, okay, these are the things that I need to make a plan for today. And we recommend that you at least go through some of the basic ones, particularly like Matt said, when it comes to things like media communications policy. And if you don't have one of those in place, it's hard to train people that are answering your phone on what they're supposed to do when there's a media inquiry. You don't want people freewheeling in the midst of a crisis. So these plans are going to be important to have everyone know exactly kind of where they're supposed to go, who they're supposed to go to to ask questions, and what really is of the nature that they need to escalate to someone. Like a workplace accident, for example. Many times there's certain forms that you would have to complete to document the injuries, for example. So you need to make sure that you have the processes and plans in place for how to handle that. We know you can't plan for every contingency. That would take a lot of time and energy. And and at a certain point, it isn't practicable. No one has a crystal ball. But you do know those issues that arise that really do keep you up at night. Like Matt said, with government contracts, you know that your compliance with the contract is going to be essential to the success of your business long term. And if something were to come up about whether or not you fulfilled your portions of that contract or whether or not there was fraud involved in claims under the contract, that would be devastating. So you need to really do a candid assessment of what could come up and look at those and say, these are the major crises that I want to have a plan for. And then overall, what do I want to make sure that people that are on my team know how to handle and know what to do with? I want to talk very briefly about tailoring a plan for, for instance, when you're served with a lawsuit or a subpoena. So. 
when at some point during the company's life cycle, you're probably going to, particularly for government contractors, you're probably going to be involved in a lawsuit or you're probably going to receive a subpoena or a civil investigative demand. That is the nature of government contracting work. And part of that is because under the False Claims Act, whistleblowers are incentivized to make statements to the government and to file claims in order to alert the government that some sort of fraud may have occurred. When there's a False Claims Act case filed by a whistleblower and ultimately settled, the whistleblower receives anywhere from 15 to 30% of the overall recovery. So think about potentially a False Claims Act settlement. Sometimes you'll see them in the, in the news. There is a small business fraud settlement about 18 months ago or so for $38 million. So that suit had come from a whistleblower complaint, and they received about 25% of the overall recovery. So a $38 million settlement, that individual received $9.5 million for being a whistleblower. That is a significant incentive for that whistleblower to provide information to the government. The vast majority of whistleblower complaints are false. They often are based on incorrect information or missing information or a half story, or they're based on rumor and innuendo that goes around because a disgruntled employee was upset because of something that happened. Maybe they didn't, they weren't approved for overtime or something like that. Or they were yelled at by a supervisor and they ended up taking it out on the company. What ends up happening is that the company will get these types of lawsuits or subpoenas or investigative, civil investigative demands at some point during the life cycle of the company. And the company's reaction is to say, well, this is not correct. What could they possibly, why should I possibly have to face a complaint that has so many lies in it? Or why am I have to, having to respond to this investigation about my 8A status when I'm clearly 8A certified? The reality is that you have to take those investigations and lawsuits very seriously. And so part of that is having a plan in place in advance, having a lawyer on speed dial if you need one who knows the types of the type of work you do, having that relationship, the attorney-client relationship is one of trust, and understanding that what the ramifications of an adverse result from an investigation or lawsuit can have on the overall company. And so the other thing that's important about these types of plans is there is a very specific amount of time you have to respond to a lawsuit or to respond to a subpoena. Typically, when you receive a subpoena, the deadline for responding is going to be on the face of the subpoena. But with a lawsuit, you're not necessarily going to have that notice. In federal court, it's 21 days. And in state court, it's typically somewhere between 20 and 30 days. So when you receive that initial notice of the crisis, either the lawsuit or the subpoena, you are on a very tight timeline to get a lawyer up to speed or get a communications team up to speed to be able to properly advise you on a response to that, to that event. The other thing, when those lawsuits or subpoenas, civil investigative demands, or notices of employee complaints or workplace accidents come up, the first thing that you should do is put what's called a litigation hold on your company. And what that means is 
you may have document destruction processes in place, or maybe you have a shredding company come every 30 or 60 days. You need to put those on hold. You need to stop the destruction of old emails or the archiving of old emails. And you need to do it right away. Because once you receive that notice of the problem, whatever the crisis may be, if you haven't put a stop on it, and later you find out that, oh, no, we didn't put a stop on our shredding, and we shredded a lot of documents related to this disputed contract, that can be held against you in future litigation, or it can be evidence of an intent to deceive the government, which turns one crisis into something far more serious for your company. And frequently, when you have a claim from an employee or from an opponent in litigation, you're going to receive a letter that gives you notice of this litigation hold, this obligation to preserve documents. When we file lawsuits on behalf of our clients, we send them out. The point there is to make sure that all of the documents that are necessary to get you safely through the crisis or to alert the government of the information necessary to get you through the crisis is maintained and it's maintained in a place that is not going to be destroyed either accidentally or frankly on purpose by someone who might be trying to pull one over on the company. And that sort of ties in a little bit with the embezzlement and theft. You can't always trust the people that work for you. I I wish that we could say you could, but I've been involved in too many lawsuits where there has been embezzlement, theft, or misrepresentation from the you know brand new employee all the way to a longtime supervisor. And so having a policy in place that is company-wide will help allow you to avoid any missteps in the crisis later because you're preserving the information you need in the moment. All right, so let's talk a little bit about creating your crisis management plan. First of all, most important, you want to have a mission statement. You want to have an understanding a mission statement that is at the front of the plan that reminds the people involved, whether it be the CEO or the executive team or the managers involved or the supervisors, about why you have this crisis management plan and why it's important. And typically, this is something that I recommend that the the founder or the CEO put together. This mission statement is sort of the guidepost and the guiding light for crisis management. Why are we here? Why are we going through this crisis? And why is it important that we make it out on the other side? Because ultimately, we have families, we have employees that we want to take care of. We ultimately are doing good work for the government or for the public. And we want to make sure that we're here at the end of the day to continue doing that work in the future. So I recommend first that you have a sort of mission statement or an inspirational statement at the beginning of your crisis management plan that every time you look at that plan, whether it's in writing or whether it's a general mantra that you go through, that you understand why you're doing it and why it's important to make sure that you're, you're crossing all your T's and dotting all your I's on the way down. So your plan in particular should include a designated point person. If, for instance, you're talking to the media, if you're talking to the government, if you're talking to a lawyer, you want to make sure that those people are designated in advance You know that if something comes up, that's the person you're going to call first to make sure that they know it's happening. And then you will coordinate that person's communications with the appropriate person. You also want a designated point person who is the end-all, be-all decision-maker for the company. Often that's going to be the CEO, but sometimes not. 
And that's the person who, when the lawyer says you have a call to make, it's option A or option B, that that person knows it's their responsibility to make that call and everybody else knows it's their decision so that all of the information that necessary to make that decision is forwarded to that person. You should also include a communication strategy. Who is going to be speaking to various people, whether it be the media or the government or the lawyers, why they are speaking to the lawyers or media or the government, and what steps they have to go through before speaking to those individuals. For instance, speaking to the media. Do you need to vet it through a communications professional? Do you need to vet it through the lawyer? Do you need to vet it through the CEO? You need a document retention and document preservation procedure. So this is the litigation hold issue that we're talking about, or that I talked about a few minutes ago. You want to make sure that the appropriate documents are being saved, that there is a person responsible for making sure your IT department or your external IT provider is preserving these documents. You may want to make backups of everything. You want to ensure that there is a person, a point of contact for your employees so if they have a question about what they're supposed to preserve or what how they're supposed to deliver documents to the company that might be relevant to the crisis, they know exactly where they're supposed to go. You also want a person in charge of your reporting requirements. You want to put in writing, and this is very important, what exactly your reporting requirements are. If you're in the healthcare space, for instance, and there's an allegation of assault or a mandatory report, you want to know exactly the phone numbers, the emails, and the contact information of the people you're reporting to. And you want to talk about the time limit of reporting. So for instance, you might have your crisis management plan, your internal policy may say within three days of receiving a report of a lawsuit or a subpoena, this all of this needs to go to the following seven people. And then you list them out. And one of those people should always be a lawyer. And then your crisis management plan should also have sample corrective action. For instance, if you receive a whistleblower complaint that you are not in compliance with a contract requirement, you should have a plan in place for how you're going to implement that corrective action. Who's going to be involved in the decision-making process and how you're going to implement that corrective action with the assistance of the government or a teaming partner. You want to make sure that your plan is clear. And this is very important. Everyone needs to be working off of the same strategy. It doesn't help. And often it makes the crisis worse when you have multiple moving parts that aren't guided by the same brain. And so if you have a crisis management plan that is clear, it doesn't have to be lengthy, but it does have to be relevant to your business in particular, that can serve as the brain for your team so that all of the moving parts are working in harmony together. You also want to make your plan readily accessible to those who may need it. Your contingency plan, your crisis management plan could be in your employee handbook or policies and procedures manual, your standard operating procedures, or your posting in common areas. You want to make sure that those plans are available to those who have a need to know. Obviously, you don't have to provide a management level crisis management plan to every employee in the firm. But if you have your crisis management plan involves employee complaints, if that's something that is a risk for you, you would want to include that in the employee handbook. It'll alert the employees to who they need to report things to. If they experience something on the job that they think is inappropriate, then the person in HR or the supervisor 
that they need to speak to, the process they should go into, and the types of information that the, the company wants to know in order to evaluate that crisis as it comes up. I mentioned earlier some ethics policies. You want to have those that are available to the employees too, so that they know that if they have a situation where they believe that you're not in compliance with a contract requirement or with a federal government requirement, such as cybersecurity, that they have a place to go internally to make that complaint so that you can resolve it before it becomes a crisis. For instance, when someone files a false claims act suit against you because, and you had no idea that this employee felt this way. So for crisis management plans that are appropriate for all employees, you could post them in common areas or include them in employee handbooks or manuals. For management level crisis management plans, you want to make sure that those are given out on a need-to-know basis. So that's all we have for today. Megan, do you want to wrap up and talk about any other issues that have come up for you in our discussion? I do want to tag on, as Matt said, when it comes to the mandatory reporting issue, make sure when you're developing these reporting requirements that you consult with counsel as to when and why certain things need to be reported because the laws on what to report and who has to report are actually constantly changing. And when it comes to mandated reporting, for example, in Maryland, they've actually recently criminalized failure to report for certain mandated reporters. And whether or not that rises to a level is something that I've had to help certain clients with on the spot when there's an allegation of of abuse of some kind. So make sure that when you are developing these plans and procedures, you also have the guidance of counsel if you can to really make sure that the processes that you have in place are going to protect you and actually serve you well. But thank you all for joining us. Thank you all very much. We hope you all enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a Polero Maza production and music credits go to bensound.com. Please subscribe to hear more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.